Amen. As you're still standing, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. I say as you're still standing, please understand that we, we do stand a lot, and if you ever get weary, um, we know your heart, and so please feel free to be seated um, if that is the best posture for you to take. We're going to be uh, going to verses 10 through 12. This completes a thought that we started last week. I'll go back and review just a little bit uh, as I begin the message. But I want to start with verse 10, talking about the coming of the Lord. We talked about that last week. It was very serious, a very somber message about eternity without Christ. And... Ultimately, depending on how you view the timing of the events, that's not really up for discussion right here, but that is going to happen when the Lord Jesus comes back. So that's where we pick it up, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, when he, Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Not just glorified, though, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, once again, we give ourselves to you. This is your word. You authored it through the pen of the Apostle Paul, it doesn't have meaning just for a group of believers that lived almost 2,000 years ago. It has fresh meaning for us today. So I pray in the powerful name of Jesus that you would superintend all of my thoughts and the words uh, out of this incredible three verses of Scripture, that you would help us to internalize those truths and that we would do more than just feed off of your word, that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, seek to live out your word. And so we thank you for that as we look forward to culminating our time together around the Lord's table. We pray that you now would speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated if you would. Let me go back and I said I was going to review for those of you who have not been here for the last couple of weeks. We completed our study in 1 Thessalonians. Now we're in 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 4. Let, let me just summarize it by saying this. Health, health is at the forefront of people's thinking today. And while there are a variety of opinions, many opinions out there about what health means, please understand this, not only physically, but also spiritually. Health is never an absence 
of disease, but it's becoming strong enough, healthy enough in your body, physically and spiritually, to fight off that disease or dis-ease. Now, the one thing that I want you to see here is that Paul praised God in verse 3. We didn't read that, but if you'd back up to it, we ought always. This is another prayer of Paul's. In fact, he has seven prayers in this little book. Seven prayers. So prayer was important to him, but he praised God in this prayer. He says, we ought always to give thanks. And then he goes on to say this, to speak proudly for you. He was talking about their growth, the growth of the Thessalonians in their faith. They were increasing in their love for one another. They were persevering in trials. Remember I just said that health doesn't mean an absence of problems, but it means being healthy enough to work through those. So he praised them for all of those things. Now let me just say this about what, what Paul says as we review verse 3 about Paul says, I give thanks. We ought always to give thanks to you, to God for you. I believe that the Apostle Paul, check it out as you read his books in the New Testament, I believe that probably the Apostle Paul was one of the healthiest, and I'm talking about spiritually speaking, healthiest, most well-balanced Christians to ever live. Now, we haven't even gotten to our text yet, but I want to make an application that I believe that some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a reason why Paul the Apostle had as much spiritual health enduring unbelievable things that he went through. He was well balanced in his prayer life and in his gratefulness to God for everything, for everything. C.S. Lewis said this years ago, it's, it's really one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Listen to it. He uses words that maybe we're not conversant with today. I'll try to, to, to define those. But, but it, the main point of what he says is so key to you and to me and to our spiritual health. We ought always to give thanks, to be grateful. Lewis said this, I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious, the, the most spacious of mind, he says, minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. He's talking about books now. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cooking, now he changes the, the symbolism here, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. 
except, I love this, except where intolerably, intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise, listen to this, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Brothers and sisters, a word to the wise is sufficient. Let's move on. Verses 5 through 10, we're still in our review. Uh, boy, we spent two weeks on this. God's righteous judgments. God is a God of justice. God is a God who is always holy, and He's always a God who is good. We've talked about both of those things, and here's what this means. We, we saw in the last couple of weeks. It means that you and I can and should trust God in every circumstance. Let me show you, just give a summary of the last couple of weeks and what we went through. And, and here's what Paul was sharing with the church at Thessalonica. He said there are two things that are going to happen when God comes back to judge. First thing is about you who believe Second thing is about those who do not believe, since indeed God considers it just to repay, to grant relief to you. But when He comes back, He will do another thing, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what this means? It simply means this, and Paul said this in another place, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. This applies to every person. And we talked about this last week. It might look like there are some people around you, and I'm not talking about extended out there. I'm talking about even some people that are very, very close to you. It might look as if sometimes people get off the hook. And, and so we have, we have to step in and do something about it, right? You can't have people getting off the hook. And that's why right here, Paul reminds us, and he said this in another place, you do not have to worry about the right kind of vengeance or revenge being exacted. In the book of Romans, he cautioned all believers. Does this apply to anyone? Here today, maybe someone that you know, that we must never, not just should, we must never, ever take our own revenge what we need to do is leave room for God. You know why? Because He will always do a far better job than we can do. He is good, He is holy, and He is just. Now, can you imagine? I know some of you ladies are in BSF. You've been going through Genesis. My wife has been loving the study of, of particularly the character of Joseph. And do you realize that Joseph would not have near the impact that it does if he acted like some of us do today? What if Joseph, facing his brothers who had betrayed him, sold him into slavery, 
abused him, misused him, all of the rest of that, lied about him? What if Joseph had said something like, you owe me? You're going to pay for what you did. You're going to fix it. You're going to repair the damage that you did to me. You're going to make amends. This is a direct quote, by the way, from what is a very, very popular opinion today. You will make amends through acknowledgement, apology, and atonement, as if they could atone for anything. The thing that makes Joseph one of the most beloved stories in the Bible is that he was willing to forgive his brothers and let God deal with them. He trusted God. He actually said, don't despair over what you've done because you, you didn't actually do it. God sent me. So the plain and simple statement growing out of verses 5 through 10 is if you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. So, that brings us up today. All right, we've done a little review. Now, you see in your outline, we're just going to walk through these verses, make application, and then come to the Lord's table. Verse 10, when He comes on that day, He, Jesus, to be glorified in His saints, glorified in His saints, and to be marveled at among all of those who believe. By the way, not everybody is going to marvel. We saw this last week, didn't we? says twice in the Scriptures, once in Matthew chapter 23 and then in Revelation, the people, it says the people of the earth who have pierced Him. Every eye will behold when Jesus comes back. And what does it say that they are going to do? Do you remember? They're going to mourn while the saints marvel at the return of the Lord. It says, because they, you, saints, have believed our testimony. What is the testimony? The testimony is the gospel. Now, let me share something with you that I've shared before, and probably I will share again. There are only two religions in the world. Let me say that again. I'm going to back it up with Scripture in just a few moments. There are only two religions in the world. Or you might say it like this, if somebody says, well, I'm not a religious person, okay? There are only two worldviews in the world today. There's the gospel, the biblical, and then there's everything else. Wow, that's a pretty big statement. Let's talk second about the true gospel. Paul said, you have believed our testimony, which was the gospel. But let's look at that first one. What is, basically, you, you can look at every other religion other than Christianity, and they are going to be boiled down to this, no matter what they believe. They're all going to have a, a certain set of facts and all the rest of that. But theirs is going to be a gospel, little g, quotation marks, so-called. A gospel of human achievement. Every religion besides Christianity is a gospel of do. What I have to do in order 
to find my place standing before a holy God. Only Christianity focuses on divine accomplishment, not human achievement, not what you've achieved, but what He has done. It's not a gospel so-called of do, it's a gospel of done. By the way, and I recommend this, you're going to, in these days particularly, there's always been a proliferation of false religions, of cults, and, and all kinds of people. Somebody was telling me about encountering just a, a chance encounter of, of, of a cult. They, they told me about this particular cult. I had never heard about it before. There are cults popping up all over the place, but here is what you can boil it down to, all right? In, in case you, you, you come up against any cult member and they're telling you what you need to believe and all of the rest of that, here's the one question you can ask. One question. What do I have to do to be saved. And then stop and let them answer. And inevitably, they're going to come back to you with an answer, well, you do this, you do that. That's why Paul was praying for the right things, the right motives. And he will be glorified in his saints. Listen. Not because of what we do to earn our salvation, but because of what He has already done. Look, look at what Paul said in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the importance of the gospel, and that's why we, we proclaim in some form or another the gospel every week that we do this thing called worship. When I came to you, brothers, he's writing to the church at Corinth. I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. <laughs> it's not going to cut it. it. It's not my eloquence. It's not the volume of my voice. It's not, it's not my appearance. It's not how I come across. Paul said this. My prayer was, as I stand down there and get ready to come up is, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to trip coming up the steps. I don't know if I'm going to fall flat on my face. I don't know what's going to happen. But help me, help my mouth to connect with my brain what I've been studying from your word to tell your people what it means to know and to believe the gospel. It's not going to come through speech, flowery speech or wisdom. And here's what Paul said. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, I said a minute ago, there are only two religions in the world. Here they are. Paul said this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here's the first religion. Worship and serve the creature. That's the first religion. Whether it's atheism, agnosticism, or any other religion, they end up worshiping and serving the creature. And Paul even, he, he shares some categories of this in verse 23. He says they worship man. Ultimately, they worship themselves. Or they worship birds. They worship four-footed creatures. I begin to think, oh, you know, how many things have been worshipped like this? And then he says they worship creeping or slithering things.
Every other religion other than Christianity is basically a thought-up religion. It's a designer religion. Hey, you know, rather than, rather than take the truth of God, I'm going to exchange that truth, and I'm going to design my own religion so that I can be approved before God. That's every other religion. Or we worship and serve the Creator who is blessed forever. We come back to 2 Thessalonians. Paul is very, very clear. Those who know God, those who obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ are destined for hope and redemption and reconciliation and relief, he says. And those who reject that are destined for wrath or destined for judgment. Let's move on to verse 11, the first part of that. And to this end, he says, we always pray. You know, I, I don't know that I can say much more than this, but, but we need to pray. Have, have you discovered, for those of you who have lived any number of years, have you discovered that prayer is hard work? Prayer takes a commitment. I know that I have a, a, a certain structure, and it works for me. And when I get up in the morning very early, and I sit down and I read God's Word first, I'm using the suggested Bible reading plan that our church has put out there. It's excellent, and I suggest that you do that. We've got copies uh, on the uh, welcome desk. But I also pray. Now, as I'm reading Scripture, I pray but sometimes I wonder, I've got my prayer list before me, Lord, is this just mechanical, or am I praying like the Apostle Paul does with what I call apostolic passion? And it's more than a feeling. Apostolic passion. Again, five, seven times in this book. Now, I want you to watch this. Never. Get this, Paul never prays that the persecution coming against the Thessalonians would end. What he prays for is that they would be strengthened, that they would have the right doctrine, and out of that doctrine, they would have the right living. Why? The second part of verse 11, 11b so that our God may make you, look at this, the wording is so important, He may make you worthy of His calling. Our God, it's very intimate, our Father, our Abba, you, you know that word came home to me several years ago, several years ago. When my family and I went to the Grand Canyon, South Rim, you ever been there? And uh, through a, a series of events, it was kind of, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't check the time change for, for Arizona. Do you understand that it's different than mountain time? So I told Jan, and the two girls were with us. Jason was not. He was off at college, I believe. I said, hey, we're going to get up early because I want to see the sunrise 
on the, the south rim, okay? And so I wake up dutifully, 4.30 in the morning. We're going to pack up, get our camping stuff together, and we're going to drive up there. Only it was strangely quiet. Nobody else was stirring. We got up there. Nobody else were there. was there. And then I realized that we didn't get up at 4.30 because of the time change difference. I got those girls up at 3.30 in the morning <laughs> to go and watch the sunrise. So we had a few minutes. <laughs> we kind of walked around. But, but here's, here's the point of the story. There were people from all over the world. It was really, it was fun just watching, interacting with people. And, and there were people from all over the world. There was a couple. They looked Middle Eastern, whatever, from that, that part of the world. And I figured out exactly where they were from when their toddler, who was running around, and he ran up to his daddy with his arms out, and he said, Abba, Abba. Daddy, Father, and it clicked all of the times, the intimate nature of God, our Father. That's what Paul is talking about, that our God, now watch this, may make you worthy. God makes worthy those whom he counts worthy. And he counts us worthy only by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a big biblical word that I want to use, and, and, and you need to understand the difference. Yes, even some of you students and even younger kids, let me throw out this word. It's called imputation. A few of you are writing it down. Imputation. It means that God gives to me. He imputes to us based on nothing but faith alone, in Christ alone. And He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. And then the word impartation. Have you got the difference between the two? Imputing, He gives to us. Impartation, He makes us more and more into the image of His Son. A new creation, high obligations. Let me just stop and ask you, because I have, as a pastor, I've dealt with people taking the Lord's Supper for a long, long time. Not so much at this church, but I can tell you at other churches, people would come in up at the end of the service and they would say, Pastor, I, I didn't take the Lord's Supper today. Now, I, I get it. I, I understand it. But their doctrine has sub, subtly shifted to another religion. Are you following me? Well, why didn't you take the Lord's Supper? Because I don't feel worthy. Let me let you in on a secret about the Lord's Supper. Christian, that's the point. Whom God counts worthy is worthy. 
because of him imputing the worthiness of Christ. And then out of that, now I understand, and sometimes people are dealing with this, they've had a fight with their spouse, or they've, they've gotten out of sorts with someone. And, and, and yes, obviously, we ought to make whatever we can right. That's in the context of the Lord's Supper, certainly. But the key to the Lord's Supper is recognizing what He has done to make us worthy before Him. He's called us. That results in conversion according to God's divine purpose. Well, let's just look at it here. Two slides, Romans 8, 28 through 30. I was talking to our ABF class. Somebody asked uh, last week, I, I hear you talking about, and they said ADF. And I said, no, no, that's ABF. That's a fancy name for Sunday school. And uh, we have adult Bible fellowship. And so I was teaching this morning, and we, we talked about this. Um, a year, years ago, I taught through the book of Romans. Some of you here? Yeah, I, I was joking with one of the ladies. I said, you were in the third grade when I started. It, 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 took, it took five years to get through that. But I looked back this week, and this could be called the golden chain of salvation. I preached eight messages on this passage because it's so rich. Now, let's walk through it and see what God has done from eternity past to what He will do in eternity future. And we know that for those who love God, watch this, all things work together for good all things. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, that means foreloved, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Don't get hung up on words, just, just bathe in the reality of that. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also, the word used here, called. And those whom He called, He also justified. He imputed the righteousness of Christ in those whom He justified. And here He puts what's future as if it's already done. He also glorified. So what does a worthy walk look like? Filled with the Spirit, saturated with the Word, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, purity, faith, righteousness, unity. I wrote down a number of things. Contentment, great, gratefulness, like I mentioned at the very beginning of our time, wisdom and truth. A summary is, is this a worthy walk. And that's what Paul is commending them for. By this we may know we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Are you worthy of taking the Lord's Supper today? If you are in Christ, he has made you worthy. Let's move on. The last part of verse 11, and may fulfill every resolve for good. Now, I love this particular passage. 
that he may fulfill every resolve for good. Satan has deceived, <laughs> and maybe you felt you've fallen into this. Satan has deceived so many people into thinking that Christianity is getting people to do what they really don't want to do. Did you follow me on that? That's the view that a lot of people have of, of those of us who are gathered in this place today. Yeah, you Baptists just get together. The preacher gets up and he beats you over the head with the Bible and he's trying to get you to do what you really don't want to do and that's be holy. But lo and behold, Paul said this. He said, I joyfully concur. Why? Because I've been converted. Because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me and His righteousness is being imparted. I joyfully concur with and love to do the law of God in my inner man as far as the new nature is concerned. If somebody says to you, yeah, you Christians, just preacher trying to get you to do something you really don't want to do, and you tell them, no, that is not the case. Increasingly, my heart is to stop doing the things that God hates, right? And start doing the things that God loves increasingly. Now, this word resolve a longing for, a desire for good. That's God's definition, the law of love. God and your neighbor, your identity found in Christ, the Bible as complete and sufficient, reconciliation in Christ, assuming the, the, the best of others, particularly of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But this word resolve, I, I want you to get a picture of it. And, and I'm going to talk to everybody, but, but I really w w want to, to say something to our students and even to some, some of you children who are mature enough to get this. There is a difference in this word resolve and what we do on New Year's, okay? Typically, what do you do on, well, maybe you don't, maybe you realize it's futile, if you're old enough, you realize, oh, I've made New Year's resolutions all the time, and it, it ends up being futile. It's different than that. With a, with a New Year's resolution, here's basically what it means. I'm thinking about, and then fill in the blank. And then maybe you get more serious, and you say, well, no, no I'm not just thinking about it. I've made a decision. This is different. This is a resolve. Paul says, I'm, I'm praying for you. I, I'm praying for our students. I'm praying for you adults. I'm praying for myself that we would move beyond thinking about doing good, making a decision to do good, to a resolve to do good. There are some people, maybe even some people here in this room today that would say, well, pastor, that's all well and good for those of people like you old guys. 
and, and other people that are more mature. But hey, let's not put that on our youth. And I just want to say to all over this, this audience today, to, to you students, don't, don't give in to what I call the crutch of youth. Where well-meaning adults say, oh, that doesn't really apply to you until you get older. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most influential preachers in the 1700s in this country, one of the greatest thinkers that this country has ever produced, but before he was that, he was a young man who came to faith in Christ, and when he, listen to this, when he was 17 years old, he sat down and wrote 21 resolutions. And he said, I'm going to visit these resolutions every day, every week, every month, every year. By the way, he didn't stop with that. That's what he did when he was 17. In the next year, he added to that. He came up with, guess how many? 70 resolutions. Let me just show you a, a couple of these. This is resolution number 41. Now, he's 18 years old, resolved. Pretty good for us adults. To ask myself at the end of every day, week, month, year, wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better. Now, let's, let's, let's go back, not to make himself worthy. His worthiness has already been imputed. This is sanctification. This is the living out of the Christian life. And this was a resolution that he made. By the way, don't try to copy this off. You can go online and, and, and Google Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and get all 70 of them. Begin to live it. Now, here's one for, uh, I, I'm going to say, some of us older people. And I love this. Here he is. He's 18 years old. And so he writes this resolution. I frequently hear persons of old age, that'd be me, say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will, this is kind of wordy, but follow it, I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done. <laughs> Supposing I live to old age. Oh, by the way, how old was Jonathan Edwards when he died? 54. He had just gone to be president of a college. He died by trying to lead by example, taking the smallpox vaccination, inoculation, because he was, he was frail. He got sick and he died at 54. I don't know if that would have been, been considered old or not, but he kept that resolution. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? What would happen in your life and in mine, in, in your home, with your student making resolutions 
to operate out of what God has done through Christ in their lives. And if you as parents and grandparents would do the same, and if we would do that in our church, what a difference that would make. Last part of verse 11, in every work of faith by His power. By the way, the only kind of work that we ought to pursue is a work of faith, produced by faith, faith-inspired, naturally supernatural, if you will. In other words, impossible to carry out on your own because the living God is determined to have us on His terms, not ours. So what He wants is not for you to say, I'll do more, I'll try harder, but believe in what He has already accomplished by His power. And He said that. Jonathan Edwards did in one of his resolutions. In fact, the preface, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I wasn't sure that I should share this. Uh, but as I was preparing this message, the thought came to me when I came to this particular juncture that there have been times in my life where I have doubted my salvation. The question that I had asked sometimes was, have I done enough? Have I done enough good, parentheses, to earn my standing before God? What's the answer to that? You can say it more resoundingly than that. The answer is no. I mean, these are questions that have gone through my mind. Or the other side, have I done too much bad? There are things in my life for which I am so deeply ashamed and mortified. Have I done too much bad to earn right standing before God? What's the answer to that? No. You're correct on both counts. But what happens is, and it's so subtle, for even people who study the Word and they know that God through Christ has imputed His righteousness to me and then is working out that salvation that I, I work with Him with a sense of fear and trembling. But do you know what happens? What that's a sign of that I have subtly slipped into the wrong religion, the religion of human achievement that says do instead of done. And usually when those thoughts come to me, my prayer is very simple. You, you may not like this prayer, but here, here's exactly what I pray. Father, you know that right now, right now, this very second, all I deserve is hell. I know what I deserve, but I plead the blood of Jesus that you say has covered all of my sins. 
And what's more, oh, Father, my Abba, I genuinely desire to put away my sin, both sins of commission and omission. And I want to be conformed to the image of Christ until that day that you come from, for me and for all others who know you and who've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you worthy to take the Lord's Supper today? The real question is, is He worthy of our remembering what He has done on the cross in His substitutionary atoning sacrifice on our behalf? Will we celebrate the grace of God? I pray that we will and not be deceived by a false gospel of human achievement. Father, I thank you and praise you that you are so clear with your word about what it means to know you and to love you and to, to have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us while we don't deserve it. And Father, I pray now in that name that is above every name that we would come symbolically to the Lord's table. We celebrated this with your disciples on the evening before you were betrayed, and that you were betrayed, and, and Lord, you had something to say to us in those symbols. And so I pray now that we would take what you have given to us from your word and in the atoning death of Christ. And they, that we symbolically would receive that, even as we have received the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.